I'm so excited that I get to share with you guys tonight. And I really want to thank those of you, my small group, and some others who've been praying for me as I prepare this in the middle of several other papers. So maybe it wasn't the wisest time to say yes to Chris, but, um, but right away when he asked me, I, I just knew which text I wanted to use, and I was very, um, yeah, inspired, I guess, by this sermon. So I'm, I'm just really happy to be here. Let's pray. Father, please bless these words. Please bring your word by your spirit to settle deep in our hearts. Watch over what I'm about to say, and may your word perform what you sent it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a couple images for you. Joe, get us going on that. I have to confess, I don't love this time of year, or at least November, even though it is my birthday month. I love October, the gold leaves, and the bright blue skies, but then somewhere between then and, and my birthday, it seems to give way to those bare branches and soggy gray days or perhaps atmospheric rivers like we saw yesterday. It's the dying of the year. And for the Christian church as well, our year is drawing to a close. Um, I hate to tell you, but Advent is coming really soon. So it's maybe not accidental, at least for here in the Northern Hemisphere, that this time of year was selected for this celebration that we call All Saints Day. I don't think the intent was necessarily to baptize the existing pagan celebrations that the ancient peoples had. I think it was actually to contrast the really fundamentally different ideas that Christians have about death and the world to come. Historic Christian teaching on death and resurrection, and even our continuity with those who've gone before us is strikingly different from both pagan and materialist approaches. And for some of us, the freshest stages of grief are where we are right now. And uh, we lit these candles, and maybe that was a, a helpful ritual for you. I, I really know how heavy that can make our hearts. So I really, really hope when you leave here tonight that you don't just feel that we put you through the emotional ringer as we sang bright and sparkly songs about heaven while your heart is lying on the floor. Um, I hope that this sermon will encourage you right in the place where you are. It will make space for your genuine experience of grief. As we just heard, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And hopefully, you'll find some comfort in our strong hope for God's future. I've called this talk the communion of saints. Where do we get that phrase? Well, in the Apostles' Creed, which summarizes the teaching of the earliest church, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that's small c, like the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. But are there ever two words that we're more likely to be misunderstood? Who are these saints, and what is the nature of our communion? I'm sure you've heard Chris say this before, but saints are not just people who have their own special days. We know St. Patrick, St. Valentine, and St. Nicholas. They were all Christians of exemplary holiness and were so faithful for their example to the church. But in the New Testament, the word saint simply means one who's sanctified, one who is set apart. And Paul, in his letters and throughout the New Testament, continually uses it just to refer to all the believers in Jesus. All who have trusted in Jesus and who through his death 
and resurrection have been brought out from their old life of sin and slavery. They're set apart for this new life. So if that describes you, you are a saint. So saints of God, let's listen to the story of God together. I've asked uh, Ben Goodwin to come up and help me. And we're going to be in John chapter 11. It's on page 1076 in your pew Bible. Do you want a mic? Here we go. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. Oh, let's stand. (laughs) Get you on your feet. You're going to fall asleep soon enough. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. But Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. 
And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Ben. I love this story as it contains one of those great personal encounters with Jesus that John's gospel is so fond of giving us. In fact, the last, if you will, the climax. From this point forward, this story is going to turn towards Jesus' road to Jerusalem and his suffering and death. What I'd like to do first is go ahead and zoom in on one particular saint in the narrative. Lazarus has died. And his sisters are sitting Shiva, which is the Jewish custom of seven days of mourning, where their community will come and sit with them. They do no work. And as they're doing this and Martha hears that Jesus has come, she gets up and goes out to meet him. And we only know Mary and Martha from this passage and then that brief scene in Luke where Jesus visits their house. But they're vivid characters nonetheless, right? And we kind of, Martha always sort of gets the short end of the deal in most of our sermons. Martha here... It's pretty consistent with what we know from Luke's story. She's direct, she takes initiative, she's active, she's the one responsible. You might even say a bit type A. And there are lots and lots of scenes of Mary and Martha. But I thought I'd give you maybe this one because it's impossible to find a picture of Jesus speaking with Martha. That's just not as exciting of a scene, I guess. So Jesus arrives, and Martha first says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Some see in those words a very indirect, sort of delicate request. But I wonder, because her behavior at the tomb later doesn't suggest that she seriously expects Jesus to bring Lazarus back to life. She's the one who objects to opening up the tomb. In characteristic practicality, it's going to smell bad. The NIV bad odor doesn't touch it. It's like, he stinks. So it might be better to understand what she says as the wishing that it could have been different that we so often put ourselves through when something awful has happened. If only we'd been. If she'd just. If only he could have. 
Martha had cherished the hope that perhaps Jesus would come in time. And even though her hope was disappointed, she still affirms her belief in him. Just as in the psalm that we read, I kept my faith even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I think that's Martha here. She may not understand. In fact, she doesn't even ask what delayed Jesus. But she still has confidence in his ability to help. That's often what tenacious faith in the face of grief looks like. We cling to our knowledge of God's goodness, even though we wish awfully hard that it had worked out differently for us in this case. Whatever she means by it, Martha's observation sets off a profound exchange. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Martha's pretty sure she knows what resurrection means. I know he will rise again in the last day. So this is the general Jewish thinking of the time. Maybe not the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection, but most everybody else breathes the air of apocalyptic literature that talked about the day of the Lord. This Jewish notion of the afterlife was a confidence that at some future time, this last day, all the dead would be raised, some to be judged righteous and rewarded, and others to be punished. In some ways, this idea of resurrection has less to do with a vision of eternal life than it does with the need to vindicate the justice of God. It's like it says in Ecclesiastes. Here's something that happens all the time and makes no sense at all. Good people get what's coming to the wicked, and bad people get what's coming to the good. Why do the innocent suffer and the wicked prosper? By Jesus' time, most Jewish people had settled on an answer to that. In the resurrection, God would administer his perfect justice, and everyone would get their just rewards. I won't sing for my miss. But this is at best an ambivalent hope. I mean, who can be sure that we are among those righteous. Maybe that's why Martha's statement seems so flat. He'll rise again, all right, but then who knows? Sometimes the church, even the Christian church, has really dwelt in this same kind of view. Here's a photo I took when we visited the great medieval cathedral at Bourges. Here's Jesus sitting in judgment, and on his right hand, over here, the dead are coming out of their tombs. <clears throat> and blissing out, while on the left, those judged are being tortured by demons, put into the pot, and so forth. It's quite vivid, and it sits right over the central door of the church. Can you think what it would mean to have to pass, quite literally, under that judgment every time you come to worship? You are always asking, you're meant to be asking, well, which is me? So that's Martha's framework. And Jesus just blows apart her assumptions. Although he already knows that he intends to do a mighty act, even answer her implicit request if it is one, it's equally important that he help her see the inner meaning of this coming miracle. Miracles in the New Testament are never just wonders. There are perhaps four different words that the New Testament uses. It's not just miracle. They can be wonders and signs and works or quite literally power, like works of power, but never wonders without signs. A miracle isn't just a cool trick that makes you go, wow, and kind of be amazed, like a wonder implies. It always points to something. The miracles of the Gospels always testify to who Jesus is and what God is up to in the world. 
Presumably, Lazarus' tomb was one of many in the area, and yet Jesus only raised one man. So, for the time being, miracles can be selective, and they always have a meaning. And the meaning Jesus wants Martha to grasp is that her faith should be in a person. I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is here now in your presence. Every time Jesus says, I am, in John, he makes an astonishing claim. See, in Greek, you can leave out that pronoun I. It's just not really necessary. Half the time, you can even leave out the word to be. And it's such a boring little word that you usually sort of stick it at the end of the sentence if you must put it in. But here, Jesus says, ego eimi, like I am. And of course, this recalls the name God revealed to Moses. Why else, when he says this, do the Jews want to pick up stones and throw them at him? This is blasphemy. In that context, I am is a not-so-subtle claim to divinity. So our much-maligned friend Martha responds to this with one of the clearest confessions of faith in Jesus that we hear from any of the disciples, right up there with Peter's famous response. I have come to believe, she says. I have persuaded myself. I have convinced myself. I now believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and the one who is coming into the world. This is an icon of Mary and Martha, and I like it because Martha is, uh, Mary has her, her perfume pot, but Martha has this scroll with her confession of faith, which goes right up there, like I say, with, with St. Peter. Now this word resurrection. What Jesus is about to do for Lazarus is not properly speaking a resurrection. Yes, Lazarus does get up and come out of the grave four days later, but in the same body, more or less, that he had before. Someday, like all of us, he died and was placed in a tomb and stayed there. My dad was fond of saying, on the day Lazarus was raised, he very well may have had a headache. The resurrection of the dead that we confess in the Apostles' Creed is something quite different, as the example of Jesus shows us. Um, The Creed talks about The resurrection of the body, and that's tremendously important. When Jesus appears to his disciples on that Easter day and thereafter, he has a body. It can be touched. It can eat. It even bears the scars of his passion. But it is somehow also different, discontinuous from his mortal body that they knew. He can appear in a locked room. He is curiously difficult to recognize. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that our resurrection bodies will also be in some way transformed, whatever that means, from the perishable to the imperishable. And yet to be human is to be embodied in some form or another. We talk about our future in God as going to heaven. We can celebrate that, and they're wonderful metaphors of heaven, and yet it might be better to talk about heaven coming to us. In the end, God makes all things new, restoring creation to its original purpose and then some. If that sounds odd to you, because we don't always speak that way, start to be on the lookout as you read your Bible for the incredibly broad scope of the redemption that the New Testament envisions. Literally, for God so loved the cosmos. God's love is wide. 
So let's at least get this out of the way. I can say with total certainty that according to the Bible, whatever our resurrection looks like, we do not become angels. Can we agree? Can I get an amen? As far as we can tell, angels are ministering spirits. They're not embodied. They're not redeemed by the crucified and risen Christ. There's a wonderful line in a Stephen Curtis Chapman song that says, I know things the angels only wish they knew because I know the grace of God. So we can just set that one aside. The resurrection of the body is an idea that does give us certain difficulties in imagining what exactly happens when believers die. Have you wondered that? Because there are hints in the New Testament, but never one explicitly clear teaching. So Christians do have various understandings. Some believe that because Jesus tells the thief on the cross, um, I tell you today you will be with me in paradise, that that means... The moment we die, believers go to heaven or a paradise-type state, which if we're going to honor this doctrine of the final resurrection, has to be a sort of temporary state until the new creation, at which point they are re-enfleshed. The book of Hebrews talks about the saints of the past as the great cloud of witnesses. Though it seems to me we don't want to read too much into that, because given the race metaphor going on in that verse, it could be that they are the crowd of witnesses at the finish line who greet us as we finish our race. That's one take. Others believe in a sort of soul sleep. Okay, this is where the dead are just dead. They're not really conscious of anything because they're dead. They're also awaiting the resurrection and which we will all experience simultaneously. And of course, this is why our headstones say R.I.P. Requiem in pace or rest in peace. It's quite logical. But I can say that when someone we love dearly has died, it can be a difficult teaching to accept. After my dad died, I actually felt for a long time that proper Christian teaching was kind of cold comfort. I knew better, and yet in a way, I wished that I could just be a good old-fashioned pagan. I wanted to sort of have that, that comforting belief that, like, his spirit was still with us, looking out for us, cheering us on, kind of family circus, like grandma's peeping down from the clouds. Oh, Billy got an A on his spelling test. Isn't that great? And you'll find that kind of idea on our popular media, and Facebook, and even in a lot of quasi-Christian contexts. No end of that kind of thinking. I'm just not sure that we've thought it out completely. If the dead are present and active in this world now, that could be comforting, but it could also be terrifying. It makes all those ancient rituals about scaring away bad spirits or placating them with offerings look kind of reasonable. People have not been all kind and benevolent to us during their lifetimes, so why would we expect anything that different from their spirits? I think we need to check ourselves just to see if that idea has crept into our thinking, only because it falls far short of God's glorious truth for us. Recently, I've come across a third understanding, which was really helpful to me, so I'd like to share it with you. This was in my reading. It suggested that the whole problem is the result of our misunderstanding about the nature of time. Um, eternal time, God's time, and earth time, or just clock time, not necessarily the same thing. Okay, we could get all wonky about the physics and the philosophy here, but I'm not going to go there. Let me try to boil it down. Perhaps it's like this that those who've died have passed directly into God's future, 
into what we might call eschatological time. So for them, the resurrection is a present reality. And even though we're still bound to this earth and its mundane time, we could truthfully say that in the already and not yet that is God's kingdom, they really are with Christ. The metaphor here that I loved was that they have crossed time zones from us. So if that helps you, you can hold on to it. And here's a really good piece of news about the communion of saints. Because we know that on the one hand, we long for that continuity and communion with those we've loved. And on the other hand, many of us have been deeply wounded even by those very same people, even the ones that we knew were following Christ in their own broken way. You may have a certain person in mind that you're thinking, you know, honestly, I don't know if I want to spend eternity with him or her. (laughs) The cynic says hell is other people. Yeah. But it's not like that. It's because our communion is exclusively in Christ. The person that we meet when we arrive, as our songs say, on the other shore, is one fully transformed by God. I don't know exactly how it all works, but I'm confident that in God's future, we will all be fully and truly ourselves for the first time. We'll be healed of the wounds which made us wound others and fulfilled in the personalities which God intended us to have. You guys remember, I gotta get this in there, right? You remember season three of Downton Abbey? How Mary says, all happy with her new baby, I sure hope that I get to be your Mary Crawley for eternity and not Edith's or anyone else's for that matter. Yeah, that's what it's like. In eternity, we get to be God's version of ourselves and not anyone else's. Isn't that a glorious hope? But let's attend for a minute to what the other half of what Jesus says. It's easy to dwell in the resurrection. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So that might point to the resurrection part. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. There's something about life that's here for us now. So the communion of saints is good news for us, not just in some distant future, but right now. I've been keeping company with Jürgen Moltmann for a few weeks now. Nice, thick book. But he's wonderful on this point that this life that Jesus promises isn't just some sort of longer extension after death. It means the annihilation of death in the victory of the new eternal life. Believers, he says, no longer live in this unredeemed world of death. That's not where our true life is. But rather, there is for us already true life in the midst of false life, though only in communion with the one who had been crucified by that false life. Indeed, the crucifixion looms large in this story, although to see it, we need to step backward and zoom out to see the larger frame in which Jesus' conversation with Martha is set. We'll look at the beginning of the text for a minute. When the sister's message first arrives, Jesus was ministering in this area across the Jordan, and we all kind of have to scratch our heads and wonder, okay, if Jesus loved Lazarus so much, Why didn't he go to him immediately? The text gives us some different clues, but one simple reason might be that the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, in chapter 10, he nearly got himself stoned for claiming oneness with the Father. So going back to Bethany, which is only two miles from Jerusalem, is no light matter, as his disciples well realize. 
And when Jesus says, oh, Lazarus is asleep, and they think, oh, oh, that's probably the sleep that comes when you're getting better, in which case, why should we put ourselves at risk? Lord, what are you thinking? By this point, Jesus clearly knows what he is intending to do. I think it's a good guess that during those two days of inexplicable delay, Jesus is praying, seeking his Father's will. And this enigmatic response he gives to the disciples is probably best interpreted something like this. While I'm walking in the daylight, that is, while I'm obeying what the Father has shown me, I won't stumble. But if I turned aside from the path that's been laid out before me, then I'd be in darkness, and that would be a problem. Jesus also knows that he's walking into a hornet's nest of conflict and opposition from this party that John refers to in this sort of shorthand of the Jews. The whole episode is shot through with that tension. Twice we're told that Jesus meets Martha and then Mary outside the village. He never goes to the home where the community is is sitting with them. On the way to the tomb, some of them taunt him. "Ah, If he healed a blind man, why couldn't he have healed his friend anyway? And immediately afterward, when he's brought Lazarus out, some of the Jews believe. But in the face of this mighty miracle, the response of others is to go directly to the Pharisees in Jerusalem, who decide that this man is too dangerous to be left on the loose and begin to plot his arrest. So in Giotto's picture here, we see that some are bowing down, but others are indignant. The raising of Lazarus is thus a critical point in the Gospel of John. It's this climax, as I said, of the signs narrative and the direct transition into the week of the Passion. So when Jesus makes this decision to cross the Jordan, it is a conscious setting of his face towards the cross. In fact, we cannot speak of the communion of saints without speaking of the cross. Another saint in this story, our friend Thomas, says, let us go and die with him. Our communion with God and with one another begins at the cross of Christ and in our identifying with him and taking up our own crosses. And then this suffering for us inaugurates an entirely new kind of future. Because in the cross, that tension between the suffering of the righteous and the flourishing of the wicked oppressors is not resolved by appealing to God's deferred judgment. It is completely transformed. Here's Moltmann again. The one will triumph who, first, died for the victims and then also for their executioners. And in so doing revealed a new righteousness which breaks through the vicious circles of hate and vengeance and from which the lost victims and executioners, and and which from the lost victims and executioners creates a new mankind with a new humanity. We've been speaking of our tender regard for those we have lost, but in truth, we must also say that the communion of saints through the victory of the cross is not to be equated with simply the good feelings we have for those we love and those who are like us. But this communion is to be a present reality in our lives. It will force us to reach beyond our comfort zones and make manifest God's love among a community of those who are, in fact, not alike. Jesus is the basis of our communion. Not age or race or gender or social class or, here's a good one for us right now, political party. Mmm, that's relevant, right? 
I can't stand, I can't, I can't resist. As we're all too aware, in two short days, we will know the results of this election that's been so difficult for our nation. And you know what, the day afterwards, we will look one another in the eye. Yes, that means even the person sitting by you or in your family who thinks that person is the best candidate to lead our country. See what I did there? We will look one another in our eye and keep loving. Of course, we'll continue to have conversations about what ought it to mean to live now in the light of the coming kingdom of God. And then we will roll up our sleeves and we'll just keep working for reconciliation and healing in our nation and in the world. It's our privilege as citizens of heaven that we can participate in this political life without ever making of it an idol. So our communion is spiritual, but also practical. I have experienced it when in my family's time of crisis, you upheld us in every possible way. You prayed and fasted. You encouraged us through your notes and cards and visits. You mowed our lawn and you even did my dishes. This is how we love the brothers and sisters that we can reach out and touch in the flesh. What about our communion with those who have gone before us? Is it just a spiritual reality, which is kind of a nice way of saying, when we all get to heaven, how great that will be, which is a great song, by the way. As Protestants, we don't practice prayer to the saints. But there are concrete actions which can help us realize our continuity with those who have walked this pilgrim path ahead of us. To begin with, we name them and we bless them. Don't ever hesitate to say the name of someone's loved one who has died. You might think, oh, I don't want to like, remind them. Trust me, they're already thinking about it. You will join them when you name that person. We remember if you look at that word and its parts, we remember gathering together the scraps of their story that are becoming disconnected from our reality. We tell their stories. And when we tell their stories, we locate our own lives and theirs in the grand sweep of God's story. Let me tell you how I found myself praying about the, I can't even remember, third or fourth night that we were in the hospital with my daughter Lydia when she had been diagnosed with this cancer. She's in her crib. I'll tell you, for the first day or two, you can't even pray. And what I was praying is, I remember, I, I prayed into a Bible story, right? The story of the woman who brings her child to Jesus. In that trust and confidence, like, okay, we got nothing else here. This is what you need to do. So in that moment, my story was blessed by that saint's story given to us in scripture. And it made a channel for my prayers. As I said, we have no idea what's coming, but she's in your hands. We tell their stories, and as we do, we give thanks for the lives of all the faithful. When the psalmist in Psalm 116 celebrates his healing, and it's really a psalm celebrating a temporary reprieve from physical death, but that doesn't mean we can't read it with a different um, overtone. He says, 
I will sacrifice a thank offering to you. Call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. We do this quite literally. When we gather together, as we are right now, to join in worship, to remember Christ's death and his coming kingdom, and to encounter his living presence. Eucharist, the word means thanksgiving. This is our sacrifice of thanksgiving. And at God's table, we lift up the cup of salvation. And together with all God's people, we give thanks. We give thanks for our release, for this new life, which is ours right now in Christ, and for our sure hope in the near future of God. So it's in this worship, as well as all the other actions I've mentioned, we are truly joined with those throughout all time whose hope is in the name of Jesus. As we join in that everlasting chorus, we just sang it, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And our worship becomes part of our communion. Lord God, we just thank you for filling our lives with your hope. Teach us what it means to live in identification with Jesus. Teach it what it means to take up our cross. Teach us what it means to reach out in love to the other who is not like us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to see where we are in your story. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our crucified and risen Lord and Savior. Amen.